Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is artist Bill Hoover. Bill Hoover graduated in 1993 from Creighton University in Omaha with a degree in creative writing. He was working washing dishes and cleaning restaurants, writing songs and playing music around the Midwest. After a few of Hoover's art pieces sold, having been displayed at a local diner, Hoover realized, as he says, maybe I have a future in the visual arts and can pay the rent with my paintings, because I sure as hell am not making money at music and writing. Hoover quit his day job to make art full-time and hasn't looked back. Over the last decade, his style has matured and deepened, evolving into a complex and layered vocabulary of narrative and symbolism. Hoover's work has been exhibited in the Midwest, Baltimore, and New York, and has been acquired for collections across the country. Bill, thanks for being in the show today. Thank you, Stuart. So this is, a, I guess, a somewhat serious question, even, even though it might seem a bit tongue-in-cheek. How true is the trope of the starving artist? Um, I think it's, it's, you know, it is something that people ask me, you know, it, how do you become an artist or how do you, what sacrifices do you have to make? And I always say, you know, if if it was easy, everyone would do it. And I think you you do have to pay your dues and and you know make uh, make some sacrifices to be able to have the time and and mental energy to make art or music or writing. And you know, growing up for me, there weren't any role models of artists who were like, oh yeah, this is. This is how you do it to become an artist. You know, my dad is a dentist. Uh, so there's definitely a school and a peer group that, you know, he followed to become that. But at least for me, I didn't have uh, an example of how to be an artist. So it was kind of just work to make money to pay the rent and then try and, and get yourself out there. Is that a function of being where we are? So we're in the Midwest. And we're in a city of the cities around half a million people. The metro is maybe a million or so. Um, it's grown since, of course, the time that that you made this commitment to embark in art. But this idea of having role models that you can look at and say, "Oh, I can be an artist because there is a functioning ecosystem of people that do art as a living." So that idea of looking around and seeing your dad as a dentist and other people doing professional things. This is the Midwest. We're very earnest here. Um, do, do you think your decision-making would have been any different if you'd been in an ecosystem where there were lots of artists and there was this vibrant landscape of art being done as a living? Yeah. I mean, if, if I was the, the, the son of circus performers or iter- itinerant poets or actors – or lived in the old market, or, you know, I grew up on 117th and Farnham. And back then it wasn't even in Omaha. So there wasn't a lot of uh, culture in, in those areas at that time. I know it's changed a lot, but, but no, I think in every town there's probably a pocket of people who are more artistic and maybe in other cities there's more of, a, of that available, but I didn't see it growing up and so you know one of the questions i was thinking you know how did i 
decide to become an artist when there wasn't like a real uh, easy path to that. And I don't think I ever really made that decision. It just is something that I, it, I was and then became and now I'm it. <laughs> that's not very, that's kind of clunky, but. Well, I love that idea that um, you identify as an artist disconnected from this idea of actually practicing art as a way to sustain a living so that you can at least exist above, you know, Maslow's bottom part of the hierarchy. Um, but that doesn't seem to be connected with your sense of identity as an artist. It just happens that you're an artist that made the choice at some point to actually practice art as a living. Yeah. I mean, isn't it you are what you do in some ways? I mean, being an artist is definitely a practice. And I've learned that, you know, making the decision to, to become a full-time artist and, and quitting my day job, as, as you say, meant that I spent more time doing it. And, you know, I got my degree in writing and I've done music and theater and even some dance, but I could never make a living at it. I could never make money. And so, but doing the painting, I could... I, I hate to say that I followed the money, but I, you know, I'm, I had to do, I had, you know, I'm not a trust fund baby. You know, I, I had to make a living at it. And the fact that um, I was able to sell some paintings and then that made me, gave me, a, I don't know, maybe a encouragement to continue that, that mean of dis, uh, expression, you know, going down the visual arts making more paintings and working on that. And I, I discovered I had some talent at it. And then I made some connections with collectors and it was all very, uh, very like destiny, but on by accident. So destiny by accident. That's fantastic. Uh, but there must, I feel like there is a, an explicit moment of deliberate courage in this story as well, because we talked about there being a lack of numerical and visible artists practicing art for a living in this community, certainly in the 90s as well, and, um, and in the turn of the century. But at some point, you decided, I've had a little success with painting. Not a lot, with not enough to be a trust funder and, and to retire, but just enough for you to say, I wonder if this can work. And you went for it. And that, to me, in, with a backdrop where this wasn't common, becomes even more deliberately courageous. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a, a time in my life when I also, you know, made some other changes in my life, you know, to get serious and, you know, quit, not fooling around, but quit, um, being self-destructive, let's just say that. And I was 40 and I was like, okay, I'm making $10 an hour. I was making $10 an hour 10 years ago. I haven't really progressed. And I can spend an hour making a, a painting or a drawing that I can sell for $100. Okay, there's the math there, right? So I, I decided, you know, what if... I tried it and I didn't want to die not having tried it, you know? And that's what I always say to, like I have a niece who's an amazing artist and I, I hope that she continues with it. And what I told her was like, I, you don't want to die not knowing if you can do it or not. You can always work. 
making money is like the easiest thing in the world to do. It really is. Uh, but to do what you love and what maybe you feel like you were put on this earth to do, that sounds really weird to say, but it's, that's, that's how I feel when I'm in the studio. Like I was, I am doing what I was made to do and there's, that's priceless. You know, there's no amount of money that that can pay for. So how did you, how did you come across that realization? Was it a slow burn from, from your youth into adulthood or did you have any epiphanies along the way? Uh, what realizations? That this was what you were put on earth to do. I don't, you know, it, it's, I, I, I got my, like I said, I, w I wanted to be a writer. That was my love of writing. And I knew that it was going to be something creative. I knew that there was going to be, my imagination was my best friend, you know, and, and that was what I spent most of my time developing and, and working on. And, and so as time went by and I, I realized I wasn't going to, you know, have children or have a, a corporate job or have a, those kinds of normal things that my classmates had and my family had. Uh, I think it, it was, it was definitely when I got into the studio and started painting and realized that I could spend seven or eight hours at a stretch painting, you know, writing songs or even any writing, you know, an hour of that is, that's just mind numbing. It's so hard. You know, they call it the waiting in line art poetry. You know, when you're waiting in line, oh, you can think of a, uh, you know, a, a verse, then you scribble it down. And the idea of sitting in a studio and, and working on a song or is just, yeah, that would, that wasn't, uh, that didn't work for me. So I think, I think discovering that, you know, I could spend hours painting and drawing and, and thinking of those things visually was that would that that was the realization for me i kind of had to put away the writing do you remember the moment when you sold the that first piece or those first pieces because i think the story is that you you had some pieces hanging in lisa's radio cafe which is a fairly well-known cafe diner in omaha and the pieces that were there for sale and they sold and this seems to have been the moment where uh, with a little encouragement too from a mentor and friend that you should try this. Do, do you remember that particular moment and the pieces that you sold? I do. Well, I remember getting a check from the radio cafe and just kind of thinking, oh, huh, I can pay for my rent. I can buy some groceries. I, I never made a money. I could never pay my rent by playing music. At least I couldn't. You know, there's a lot of people who, who can, who are very successful at it, but I never could. And so it just was a bit of a, you know, when you're looking in one direction and then you turn your head and you, you see something out of the corner of your eye. Because I was so focused on the writing. I was so focused on the band. I had, you know, seven or eight people in this band and we were, it was really serious. We were going to do things and, and it was fun, but 
I also had to work two or three jobs, you know, to pay the bills. And so, and so that was uh, a realization that I could support myself. I could quit some of these jobs and just use my creativity to pay my bills. That's really a, a bit shocking. Well, it's a, it was surprising because I never thought it would. It was seems like a dream, you know, and and it still does in some ways. This is radio, so it's difficult to show people your work. Now, of course, they can find your work online and in galleries. They can go to billhooverart.com. We'll grab maybe some images and post them on our Facebook site too, at Live's Radio Show on facebook.com. But why don't we take this moment for me to ask you, describe your work, the, the process and also the output. You know, that has changed quite a bit. When I first started out, uh, the, the paintings I would make, or the, it was with crayon on paper uh, of cafe scenes because I was working um, at a Greek restaurant washing dishes. And so it was, it was people uh, having dinner. It was very, very folk, very folk, folky and colorful. And uh, I also had a band and, and, my first wife is an amazing singer, so we, we had those like instruments and on stage and people dancing. So there was, again, a lot of color, a lot of movement, a very narrative. And so that's how it started off. And uh, Rene Ledesma uh, would paint the frames, and they were beautiful. It was, they were just a beautiful kind of collaboration. And, and as... I got more into it as I pushed it a little bit more. It became, some of it became more abstract. So abstract folk has been, someone said that that's, that was, that's a good way to describe it. Some of it's very uh, shape, you know, lots of shape centric uh, with black and, and browns and a more, uh, you know, more darker feel. And some of them are, just everyday scenes of people um, in in community with friends or or doing a job or I've I've done a lot of paintings of people in their apartments maybe reading a newspaper or making bread or or cooking or just everyday everyday scenes from everyday life. 
what marked some of those milestones or motivations to transition in the process of your work? So you talked about the use of crayons and certain narrative structures, and now you've moved into um, different formats and, and different stories to be told and using different medium, uh, different media like uh, paints. So why did you make those transitions? I think some of it was, uh, you know, the end of uh, of relationships. There was a that turned things darker. There was some um, also curiosity of, of new materials, and I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to to push it. I wanted to see what I could do, and I wanted to explore different themes and to have a uh i don't know maybe you know the, the the hardest thing when i had the band the hardest thing for me was just to play the same songs over and over again i just got bored with that and it's it's hard because the band loved playing the songs and you know maybe the audience wanted to hear these songs that they loved but it just it was so uh boring and uninspiring to me and so that's what i always think about when I make art, it's always what am I curious about and what am I um, kind of puzzled about and or what's what's kind of stirring around inside, you know, um, for good or for bad. I mean, that's I think that's what art does. It's it helps you to explore yourself. Does your art offer up answers or does the viewer of your art just join you in asking the questions? Yes. <laughs> No, I think, you know, for me, the art that I like met best is art that that does leave you with some questions. You know, I don't want an artist to show me everything to, to kind of, or to tell me everything. I don't want, you know, that bores me, you know. And it, it, when I'm kind of surprised by art, that's, that's what I really, uh, I, I, I value that a lot. It's like, oh, you made me think. Oh, you made me kind of puzzle. How did they do that? How did they, what is it, what were they trying to say? What, are they, what does they mean by this? And I think that's really another great thing about art is that it, it does stir up that stuff. And then you, you join the long line of being an artist and being a, a, a viewer and what it's all about to me, be a part of humanity to try and figure it out. I mean, these are heady subjects. Do, do you feel as if you have a sense of responsibility to to bring the viewers along in this consideration of the, the the human condition, the human experience, or do you think that this is entirely self-serving and it's 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 you scratching your own itch of curiosity and everybody else is just a bystander to the art piece? Yes. <laughs> okay, you're asking these two barreled questions that that are. I think they're both the same. I mean, I think. For me, I, I have a great, like, uh, I don't know, responsibility is a tricky thing. You know, do I have a responsibility to, to address society, you know, to, to make a statement? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think everyone does, maybe in a way, you know. But as an artist, what I do is publicly visible. So I, I do have a certain amount of uh, reach and responsibility. So ultimately, and now I'm at the point for me where I have to 
surprise myself. And if I surprise myself, uh, then I feel like I've done my job. And if someone else likes it or is moved by it or is surprised by it, then that's great. That's bonus. But, but ultimately it's, it's my job as an artist. And this is what I tell my niece. It's like, you have a responsibility to be the one to make those decisions. No one, you know, you don't make art by committee. It's you uh, coming up with a vision or coming up with an idea and in a painting or, or, you know, a picture that is your choice, your decisions, and then you put it out there. Or you don't. I mean, not everyone is comfortable with showing their work. And that's okay, too. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is artist Bill Hoover. Where is the wellspring for your inspiration and curiosity? Is it inherently intrinsic? Where do you go outside of yourself for inspiration? Do they inform each other? I'm trying to add in as many. I'm trying to move from double barrel to triple or yes. quadruple barrel. <laughs> Where do you find your inspiration? I don't know. You know, I I think it's like I've never had writer's block as a painter, you know. And there is a certain, uh, I I would say I, I can be sensitive sometimes, maybe overly sensitive. But definitely I see, you know, my job is to not look away. You know, if I have a job at all, it, it, at all, it's to not look away and to take that information and, and see what's going, how does that make me feel? What am I going to like notice or illuminate? A- Annie Dillard has a great saying. She says, you know, everyone goes down the same road. It's what we notice that makes us different. And so, you know, my job is to try and notice the things that that are beautiful or ugly or need to be highlighted or that tell a story that I'm interested in telling or that I think needs to be told. So, I mean, yeah, I, I feel sometimes a little like very blessed that I don't have writer's block. It's a little like a volcano, you know, 
I have hundreds of ideas and not every idea gets expressed or is, is a good idea, but I still have them. <laughs> so all I'll run out of is time. I'm glad you mentioned this idea of stories needing to be expressed. And I've read this description of your work as embodying narratives, narrative structure and symbolism. But I'm wondering if you might unravel that a little bit and maybe explain that for the listeners. What are the narratives that you're commonly trying to tell or maybe just pick one as an example? And, and what kind of symbols are you using to express some greater truth? Yeah, I mean, I, I did a painting a few years ago of about five figures standing around a table in a in a room and it was there was snow on the ground outside it was like a cutaway of a house you could look in and see these five around a table and the the title of the painting was uh for lost friends and um i've i've had some experience in in the world of recovery and addiction and things like that and so i think things symbols like a table are huge a chair I did a series of uh, paintings of pictures of a chair, a bird, and a house. Like these three groupings over and over again. I'll fill a sheet with, you know, maybe a hundred or two hundred of them. And just, you know, and I don't really know what those symbols represent, but I, I do know they're powerful. You know, a chair, a house, and a bird. And, you know, I I think that's kind of, again, something that, I, I don't know if I really, for me, like symbols that are super obvious, you know, or that I, I don't like uh, go outside of myself to look for, oh, here's, here's a symbol that I could use to indicate sadness. Oh, here's a symbol that I can use to indicate uh, family. But just there are certain things in, in life that I think are, are, have lots of meaning and resonance. That you could call them symbols or you could just call them everyday objects, but maybe they're both. I'm no expert in the field of art history, but I know enough to understand that symbology was very significant when you had a populace that was illiterate and didn't know how to read. And therefore, visual representations, typically of biblical narratives or classic narratives, required certain common symbols so that people understood what was happening. So to our eyes, a white dove is a white dove, but clearly in classic painting, it has a particular mythology and symbolism around uh, the Holy Spirit and, and, and other spiritual attributes. And artwork then was imbued with all sorts of symbols for a populace that needed some signposts to help them understand the narrative being told. But in some ways, it was quite literal. I wonder if we're at the other end of the spectrum where we have a populace that is literate but only wants to see things in 140 characters and your use of symbols in some ways maybe um, is forcing us to feel something. And I'm not even sure you're being that deliberate about it, but, but we're, we're confronted by visual symbols and we have to try to feel what this means because you're not going to write it out in 140 characters. Yeah. I mean, we are as a as a – species we 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 look for uh make sense of the things in our environment you know that's why you see a face in a ceiling fan or in a in the clouds you can see all sorts of things um 
think it was Da Vinci or something, maybe it's Michelangelo, but he would instruct his students to study the stains on the wall. You know, look at those. That's that is your teacher. That is your model. You know, I think it's good to to look at well, just to look. You know, and to see. Use your imagination to to see something that you might have not seen unless you had looked for more than two seconds. And I always thought that I was unique because I would see faces everywhere, you know, in the tiles, like in the bathroom. I'd look down and I'd always see this face with like this kind of cut out nose and uh, or in the, in the ceiling fan blades or and but it's not just me. I think everyone I hear other people say, oh, yeah, I, I always see faces or I, I always see shapes and so that's kind of, you know, it's like that. So my dad's dental office <laughs> used to have Highlights Magazine. Is this magazine for children? And there was always a section where they, they had to have a picture. And if you looked at it, you could see a bunny or you could see an apple in the corner or you could see a cowboy hat. And uh, that was always fascinating for me to just try and look. So it kind of made you study something. It's, it made you kind of slow down. That's one thing that I, I think maybe will will change. People, I think, will learn that they need to slow down and they need to spend more time. Just the whole age of, of hurry up or, or clutter or, you know, it's, it makes us sick. I think it makes us sick and sad. Not to be a weirdo about it. but <laughs> Is that a deliberate part of your artwork? You try to make people slow down to consume to consume your your pieces, or is that just it's just a necessity for life in general as well as your artwork? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I I don't think I honestly, I don't think I really ever do anything deliberate to make cause and effect. But I know for me, um, that's what I I know I need, and so sometimes, uh, you know, I I've been doing these series of paintings for the past eight years where I, I will take a, a grid and I'll number them like one to 18 or so. And I'll have eight, you know, 18 slips of paper numbered one to 18, however many squares. And I'll, I'll draw a number every day and, and whatever number I get, I work on that one little square and I'll set a timer for like 40 minutes. And on this one little square, I'll, I'll, I'll work on it. And at the end of the 40 minutes, I have to stop and I can't touch it for the rest of the day. And I have like five of, the, five, five of these going at once. And so it kind of breaks it down. And so it, it forces me to, to spend a, you know, a long time on this one little area and to really give that attention and care. And I think there's probably a metaphor in there for something. I'm not sure what, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm a real uh, believer in, in, or for me, I need a timer because, you know, even when I'm doing chores around the house, I'll set my timer for, okay, for 10 minutes, I'm going to clean the kitchen, set the timer. And then, because uh, either, because I'll just walk away or you can do anything for 10 minutes or you can do anything if you have, if you know there's going to be an end to it.
earlier you talked about knowing that art was a calling for you because you could find yourself immersed in it for seven to eight hours and not realize that time slipped away, but one hour of writing would feel somewhat more burdensome. So inherently by definition, you don't really know what your art is going to develop into over the next several years because you mentioned earlier that if you know you're surprising yourself, that 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 feels right. It's a direction to go in. So if it's a surprise, how do you know what the next few years are going to look like? Nonetheless, I wonder if we might go on a mental frolic and, and imagine. What do you think your art is going to develop into? What do you aspire for your art exploration to be over the next few years? You know, that's interesting. And it, 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 you kind of picked a memory. You know, when I, when I was a kid, my dad tells a story. Uh, I was kind of a, I had asthma. I was a pretty chunky kid. I had corn rim glasses, just a wreck. But uh, I was very excitable. And we had, we, I was playing soccer and uh, I, I kicked the goal. I kicked the winning goal for the other team. And so everyone was so mad at me and I was so horrified that what I, what I'd done, I was mortified and I didn't speak at all on the drive home. And then I, I went into the living room and I got a piece of paper and I just filled page after page of drawing just drawing after drawing. And it was a way my dad thinks to deal with this angst, this like hurt and this just horrific feeling of like, Oh my God, I've, I've ruined everyone's life <laughs> because of what I've done. And, and so that is still today. You know, I think for me, the reason that I make art is because it helps me to express the unexpressible. You know, and and I can't even begin to predict what the future. I mean, talk about next week. I mean, every I I have no idea what a picture is going to be when I start it. No idea. I uh, rarely. I mean, maybe one out of every fifty pieces. I know what it's going to be, but the majority is like I start with a, a shape or a color, then look at it for a while, and then put down more lines, put down more colors, look at it for a while. And then over time, I'll start, a memory will surface or, oh, this will look like a slide. Oh, this will look like a child. Oh, this will look like a nude reclining on the on a couch. And then I'll work on that for a while and then it might turn into a horse. You know, it might turn into, every painting has at least two paintings underneath it that I've totally either covered over or took out a majority of it and turned it into something totally different. So, you know, as long as I can continue with that uh, exploration, I think, like, I, I, I like doing collaboration. I collaborated with Devel Crisp last year uh, where I interpreted his poems in, in, in paintings, and that was wonderful. And so that is kind of my new... Uh, New direction is I, I've, I enjoy working with writers and poets. So I wouldn't mind doing that some more. I did a painting of, a, of an apartment scene of the Nottingham apartment where I used to live. And there was 12, maybe 15 apartment scenes. And I invited 
12 writers to each take an apartment and write what they think is happening in that scene. And uh, they each did. And then we put it out as a book uh, by Burnt, Burnt, Burnt Press. Burnt um, so they did a beautiful job putting out this book of, of these writers interpreting what I painted. And I didn't tell them what I thought it was. And that, so I let them kind of tell me what they think it is. And that's, you know, again, that was a great collaboration. Writing or painting is a very solitary thing. So when I can kind of collaborate with others, it just makes it a little, a little more joyful and a little more yeah, easy to kind of come up with ideas. So part of this is the business. And some artists will be commissioned to create work. But it seems in how you describe this process that it's almost impossible to do that because you don't even know when you get to the canvas um, what it's going to tell you it wants to be uh, until you work through that conversation with it. So I'm just wondering how, how this works. Do you typically have buyers that say they resonate with a piece so they acquire it after the fact? Or have you ever worked to someone's instruction? They give you some idea um, and they say, produce a work that resonates around this particular theme or subject matter. Yes, I've, I've done, I do commissions and I've, I'm working on a commission right now. And uh, quite a few um, paintings have been of families, you know, and, and maybe a, a particular place that they like. And they'll give me a few photographs of, of their children or maybe a, maybe a place that they go to or, or that's important to them. And then I'll kind of construct a story from all these different pieces that they give me. And so that's, you know, th in that way I do, you know, work from an, an idea of what's, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll know what the painting's going to be done after I have this conversation with them. Um, so, so I did a commission for a fellow who wanted uh, a painting of the Southwest and, but he also liked this color blue. So he said, do that. And so, you know, it, it was a fun challenge. So I, I did it. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not, I've done people's cats. You know, I, I, I don't consider myself too precious to do that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I enjoy the challenge, you know. So... But as far as like other people buying my work, I, I do shows. I have, sh I know I have a studio and I invite people to, to, uh, to visit and I have collectors. There's a, one fellow who's, he's bought, I don't know, maybe 20 pieces of mine over the years. Um, and just, I'm, I'm always struck by the generosity of people and how I've been supported that way. Just in Omaha, you know, I've, I've thought, you know, I thought everyone who would want some of my work has already bought it, but you know, get new collectors and new buyers, and and I don't have a gallery, I don't have a dealer, so it's up to me to hustle. You know, that's that's the other part of it. You know, I have to uh, you know follow up with people, and I have to make phone calls and send messages, and and you know, it's part of being. Uh, the business part of it, which is, it's part of being a grown-up, <laughs> so.
remember seeing a piece of yours in a group show at the Joslin Art Museum. And the Joslin locally is the grand dam of the art world. So it's prestigious, reputable. Um, did you feel at any particular point, I've made it, whether it was a show or a collector or some other recognition, a check, um, something? No, no. That's never been, I mean, I've had that conversation with uh, Kevin Lawler before. What does it mean to make it? Because he, you know, he went to college in New York and he's had, I don't know if you know Kevin Lawler, he's an amazing actor and just a writer and director. And he always said, you know, wherever I am, I've made it. You know, I'm probably butchering his sentiment, but the idea is that, you know, what's the greatest museum in the world? The Museum of Modern Art. If I was to have a show there, then I could die. That would be like, that would be quote unquote making it. But I don't, I don't like thinking of that. You know, the fact that someone buys, you know, a $300 painting of mine and, you know, the, the, my, the people who buy my work aren't necessarily rich people. You know, it's, it's ordinary people, you know, people who like it enough to, to spend that kind of money on it. Because frankly, I can't afford my prices. <laughs> you know, I can't, uh, you know, it's very gratifying to me that, that people like what I work, my, my paintings, and then they'll put them in their house. That's, that's making it to me. So that's playing by different rules that I try to, you know, I'm not, I would love it if I was to have more, uh, more success in that way. But I don't think it's really, it's not up to me. You know, we sort of started with this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, facetious idea about the starving artist trope. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you could perhaps have those people who I think of really as business people that use art as a product, maybe think like the, um, you know, the YBAs and people like Damien Hurst, people like that, um, Jeff Koons. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're, they're spectacularists of consumer culture, and they represent that back to us through, through art in some way. Um, and are extremely wealthy because of it. It seems if you've had to create the rules to exist as an artist while living in the real world, you have to sell the work, you have to hustle for it, but it has to be good. It has <laughs> to feel like it's a calling. Um, you need to be able to fall into it and let it be surprised by it and let time slip away, while at the same time acknowledging that every now and again you might have to paint a cat uh, for someone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're right, you're right. It's it sounds very adult. It is. I mean, so Stasia, my, my wife Stasia, she's very, whenever I tell her, I, I don't, oh, it's a mystery. I don't know how it works. The universe will provide. She always gets mad. She's like, it's, you know, you, you do the work, you know, it's not a mystery. You, um, yeah, you work hard, you are responsible. And there's this kind of a trope of an artist as kind of a, a, a man child you know, who just doesn't follow by society's rules and who's just totally uh, living in with their head in the clouds. But, you know, there's great, it, you know, there's a lot of hard work. And I, I remember uh, hearing this person talk about Johannes Bach. And the thing that Bach said was, you know, he's the greatest composer ever. And uh, he said, you know, anyone can do what I do. Uh, but no one can work as hard as I do.
really like that. I think that's the thing that there's so much discipline that you have to have. And there's every successful artist I know is all constantly working. They're constantly working. And that's then that they love it. I love it. But uh, it's not just being dreamy and, you know, kind of throwing flowers into the river Avon. It's, it's showing up every day, whether you feel like it or not and putting the work in and, 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 and making um, mistakes and trying things and seeing what, what is it that you were trying to say? And so, yeah, you have to be, you have to wear, I have to wear a lot of different hats, you know, and I have to definitely travel in a lot of different worlds. And, and I love that too, you know, because I can kind of be a, an outsider, you know, I think an artist is, is an outsider, part of what they have to be. And if you can, if you can be an outsider who people want to have around, <laughs> you know, you're, you, you, you're onto something. So as we draw to a close, how, how should we wrap? I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's, it's always, uh, you know, making art is, is always a mystery. Probably like trying to wrap up a interview is always a mystery. You always think like whenever I read a poem, I'm always waiting for the last line of the poem to figure out what is the point of this? You know, what is it? What was the poet trying to say? It's like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, and I always, you know, for myself, like I would tell my niece, Carolyn, you know, I, I hope to have this life until I die. And then that will be a life well lived. And that's, that's the other term that you hear people say, are you a lifer? Are you a lifer? Which means are you in it for the long haul? Are you going to do this for until you, you know, so to do, to, to continue making art with grace and imagination and fun and to be a part of a community. That's what it's all about for me. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. This has been wonderful. Bill, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. What was your question? <laughs> I love that. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>